Welcome to Deep Roots, the podcast brought to you by Oak Hill College, conversations about theology and ministry. My name's Tim Ward and I teach word ministry and hermeneutics. That means Bible interpretation here at college. My name's Eric Ortland. I teach Hebrew and Old Testament. We are joined today by our friend and colleague, Matthew Bingham, who teaches doctrine and history. Matthew, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Just to begin things, can you tell us a little bit uh, about what you were doing before you came to Oak Hill? And how, how many years have you been at Oak Hill now? Uh, so this is my fourth year at Oak Hill. And before uh, coming here, I was uh, a pastor in the United States, in Georgia. And then uh, we were in Northern Ireland for a while, where I was doing my doctoral studies. Um, pastored there briefly as well. And then came uh, down to Oak Hill in um, summer of 2018. Just tell us a little bit about the church where you pastored in, in Georgia. Yeah, um, thanks. So it was a Reformed Baptist church. It was a church plant, actually, that um, we got started there. And uh, we, we started with, uh, it was it was my wife and I and uh, two other families and, and a few a few other assorted uh, folks, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a great experience. It was not easy, but um, the Lord the Lord blessed it, and we were there for uh, five years doing that. And you were at a Baptist church in Ireland as well, if I remember correctly. Actually, uh, we were in a Presbyterian church. My mistake in, in Northern Ireland in Belfast. Yeah, my mistake. Okay. I apologize. Don't make that mistake they in were. Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> we were, yeah, we were in a Presbyterian church. Um, but they they tolerated. Uh, we were not we were not the only Credo Baptists. I think amongst them, okay. in the congregation there, and they were very kind to us. They even let me preach, from time to time. That's that that's real grace right there. Absolutely, <laughs> but but not on baptism. <laughs> no, you wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> no. Excellent. Good. Now, Matthew, your great love is church history. Just just tell us a little bit about what I mean. What drives you and motivates you in in, in teaching church history here at college? We're so glad you do. Um, just tell us kind of your heart in that. Yeah, thanks, Tim. So uh, I've always liked history. Um, before I felt any sense of call to ministry, that was actually the plan, to, mm-hmm. to go and uh, do a PhD in history and pursue teaching and research in a, in a more secular kind of way. Um, and then upon going into ministry, feeling that sense of call, um, pastoring the church, it, it's been a really happy um happy piece of God's providence that I've kind of been able to combine the two coming here to Oak Hill, uh, getting to teach and to think about history. And so all of my academic uh, work is, is in history. That's um, where my degrees have been. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's really, it's a great opportunity, great experience. Um, It's interesting though, with history, you know, if we think about what have we, we've kind of got four main divisions at a theological college like this, and it feels like uh, of those four, um, so we have biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, and then historical studies, church history. It feels sometimes like church history and historical study is the only one of those four that sort of has to justify its own existence. You know, yeah, like, I, I can feel a little bit smug about this because no one says, oh, well, the Old Testament is that important, you know, so <laughs> I, I never have to worry about that. That's but, right. Uh, no, no one's ever said to me, uh, helping people learn how to preach really well. Why do you do that at college? <laughs> yeah. So we've got the three really important subject areas and the one you teach. <laughs> it, do, it does feel, and, and actually, I mean, in fairness, there is a certain logic to it. I can sort of see it. I can sort of see it. And yet at the same time, um, I, I want to I put the plug in for church history because I feel like actually it's um, 
having an historical sense, having an historical awareness is actually really, really important. It's, it's important for the church. It's important for people in ministry. It's important, I think, for leadership in a church context. Uh, it's important for, I think, um, one's own sort of soul and one's own Christian life. I think it's really nourishing. So if you, as you have students in doctrine and, and history classes, maybe they're not saying this out loud, but they're thinking this hundreds and thousands of years ago, this stuff happened. Do I really need to know this? How will you negotiate that with a student and with a class? Uh, help us think that through. Why, 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 does, why does this matter so much in practical ways for our own Christian life and for our ministries? Yeah, no, thanks. And it, I mean, it does come up. And in fact, with the, um, so I do the church history survey course here. And so this is the very first semester and we kind of start there. And, and one of the first things I try to say is that, I, first, I try not to oversell it. I mean, as I mentioned, there's a logic to, I think there's a, there's a, it's, it's not an accident that people say, well, do, do we really need this? Right. And so I try to say, say to folks, you know, look, um, I'm not saying that if you are talking to someone in the church context who has a pressing problem, a pressing life crisis, you're not going to say, well, <laughs> have you thought about the investiture controversy yeah. and how, yeah. you know, this There was might... this guy in 452. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, to me, first step, don't oversell it. Um, but then to try to help um, students to see how uh, it, it's not just about knowing names and, and dates. Now, in fairness, I think there's some value to knowing some names and, and some dates, and I think that can be helpful. That's not a bad thing. I'm not against names and dates. But at the end of the day, to me, it's really about cultivating uh, a sense of um, this historical movement and this sense that I'm situated in a particular time, in a particular place. I have a context. I have a relationship to those Christian men and women who came before uh, I am affected by them. Um, uh, there's continuity and discontinuity with them, and there's important things that I, I need to take from that and learn from that and bring to bear on the way I think about the present moment. Do you, do you think it's true to say, in a sense, the word debtors to Christians of earlier generations, even if they were in a different part of the church, and even if we might have had significant and perhaps valid theological disagreements with them, in a sense, we're still debtors to them? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, absolutely, and 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 I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's just there's the obvious ways in which, you know, I I didn't, um, you know, someone had to teach the gospel to me, someone had to preach to me, uh, someone had to preach to the person who preached to me, and I mean, so there's this obvious sense of of a chain that goes all the way mm -hmm. back into in which we're all debtors to those who came before, mm -hmm. um, but then in 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 a wider sense, you know. Uh, the, the way that we do things at my local church is, is not something that we all invented out of, out of nothing. Uh, we, we stand in this, in this relationship to the, to the past. We're conditioned by it. And I think if you don't, if you don't realize that you, you actually do have these sorts of traditions weighing on you, uh, and you just imagine that everything you do is is somehow um, unique to you, or that you invented it. Uh, you you know, it's not that you won't have traditions; you just won't understand them, and you won't be in a position to to think wisely and well about them. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I guess we will get into talking about just some uh, real particulars from history and how that really helps us. The thing that was occurring to me just as you were talking, just at the really kind of basic level of here, here are some of the ways in which history is significant. Would this just, this just occur to me? Would this be right? At some level, just the nature of our sin is 
not going to incline us to think that we owe a great debt to those who came before and we've been thoroughly shaped. Because we all like to think of ourselves as, I made myself, I'm responsible for my own achievements. Well, I believe that's just because I'm really clever and I thought it through. Um, and I, I wasn't created by anybody else. I wasn't made or shaped by anybody else. The way that sin just makes you think that you're the pinnacle and you made yourself who you are. Yeah. I mean, is that is that kind of fair? That just a right sense of history having shaped who I am, yeah. being really aware of that, um, is actually going to come through sanctification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think in in that in that recognizing that we all have we have blind spots and we have things that we miss and that we're um, you know we're we're all probably conditioned more by our wider cultural context than we than we care to admit you know. Uh, and um, you know, C.S. Lewis has has this great um, preface he writes to Athanasius on the Incarnation. So he's writing this essay as a preface to this this older, much older, fourth century uh, text. And um, you know, in that though, he talks about why we need to read old books. Mm -hmm. And though he frames it in terms of reading old books, I mean, the, the case is he's basically putting forward is why we need to think about. The past, why we need to think about Christians who came before. Mm. And the point that he brings out really, really well is this sense that every age has its own outlook, and that means it's going to have its own strengths and it's going to have its own weaknesses. Um, I'm, I'm conditioned by the fact that I live in the 21st century West, and I can't escape that. Um, so there are going to be ways in which the, the, my th patterns of thought mirror the patterns of thought on offer in you know the editorial page of The Guardian, even in ways I'm not conscious. So how, how do I how do I check that? Um, and actually getting in touch with Christians from the past with their own set of issues, mm -hmm. but they're just not my issues today. They're a different set of weaknesses and blind spots, mm -hmm. but that can help me to kind of see uh, see myself a little better. You know, oh. it's like having a having some sort of contrasting surface yeah, yeah. against which to see the outline and the contours of your own identity more clearly. A bit you like know? if you travel the world now to a different culture, you'll find out things about yourself that you thought either you didn't know about them yeah. or you just thought well all right thinking people do this and then you discover no it's, they no they don't it's only with people like me it's suddenly you know about history there are massively more different cultures and kinds of people to show you how just localized you are mm. in fact in that essay lewis said that we, we should for every book we read we read written in the 20th century we should read one written before the 20th century to balance it out and mm. cleanse our palate mm -hmm. as it were one of the things i've been most concerned with my kids who are teenagers now growing up in a very secular 21st century western liberal progressive context um the particular hot button issues that our culture has have a they can have a feeling of inevitability obviousness um that, um, you know, all, all the issues with marriage and sexuality, that the kinds of answers our culture is giving, our, our culture likes to present itself as giving the most obvious, mm. inarguable, like obviously it's that way. And just being aware that for most of recorded history, nobody thought that way at all. That doesn't make them perfect in everything. But just having a sense mm. that this is actually an extremely new way of thinking. And probably 50 years from now, the questions are all going to change. People... Just having that is crucial to engaging with our culture. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. If I if I remember this rightly, my son's late teens now, but when he was younger, watching on telly, something lots of people watch horrible histories. The thing on children's TV here, 
Um, and it's, it's pretty funny. And in a sense, they're informing children about history. But my memory of watching some of those with him is, in the end, what it defaulted to so often was just laughing about how stupid they were then. Mm. And no one actually popped up and said, okay, we're so much better now. Mm. But the overall tone seemed to me that somehow everything we think at this particular moment in history, in this particular tiny little place in the world, is obviously much more sensible than all the idiotic people who lived back then. Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you think, Matthew, are there particular, f- well, or, or two, are there particular features, do you think, of the particular culture that we live in that just dispose us to think in those sorts of ways, dispose us to not take seriously mm. what may have been good in those who came before us? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I think you're absolutely right about... Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen some of those horrible histories. And I, I totally, yes, what you're saying that is right. And that's often the way uh, the past is is presented. And one thing I think is really interesting about that, you know, if you think about what what's the big story of the 20, Christianity in the 20th century, the big story is, is the globalization of Christianity, mm. the global expansion of Christianity. And with it, the recognition, the right and proper recognition that Western Christians do not have the full uh, story to tell. We don't have a monopoly on what it means to be the Church of Christ in the world. And so I think in light of that, I think all of us are very um, aware and sensitive to, and rightly so, the fact that Christians from around the world have something to teach us and show us. Mm. And we need to hear that and listen to that. Mm. And yet you don't always see the same with um, Christians from other periods in time. I mean, it's kind of the same dynamic, isn't it? You have very different cultural moments um, going back in time where you have a whole different set and array of assumptions and challenges. And, and yet often yep. we're very quick to dismiss uh, those people groups in a yep. way that we never would with, with contemporary uh, global Christians. Yeah, yeah. That well-known line, first line of a novel is the past is a different country. They do things differently there. Yeah, 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 ex- exactly. Um, and I think I'm quoting that right, something like that. Well, and, and, and as someone who lives in a country where I was not born and who, who thinks about the past, I can say that. I, I think that's right on the money. Um, in, in fact, you, you mentioned um, that idea of getting to know yourself when you travel abroad. And mm. I don't know if this has been your experience, Eric, but I, since coming to the UK, um, even though we are in many ways sort of proximate cultures, I have, I've become very aware of the sort of contours of my Americanness since coming to this country mm. uh, in a way that I just never could have been had I just uh, sure. stayed at home. Sure. Well, uh, sure. let me say, working with American colleagues, um, I, I've started to see things about my own Englishness that I thought were just, well, all godly right-thinking people do that, don't they? <laughs> and I'm sl- n- you guys have, have been very gracious. No one said it. But I'm beginning to realise maybe that's not godly. Maybe that's just me being a bit English, <laughs> so I'm so you haven't pointed it out. The, thank you for that. The, there's a kind of graciousness that's possible here, where we can listen to and respect other Christians, and let them be sinners and who need God's sanctifying grace as well. We don't put them on a pedestal, um, especially Martin Luther in that way, who I admire so much, and who said and did some pretty despicable things. Mm. And yet I deeply admire the man as well. And I'm not Lutheran. I wouldn't qualify as Lutheran. You know, we just don't line up theologically in a number of ways. Mm. And yet I'm so profoundly thankful for the man. Are there other important figures in church history or periods in church history that for you just really crystallize this dynamic of helping you see yourself that, you know, 
periods or figures you've really gotten a lot out of. And, and at the same time, you see the flaws, mm. it, you know, as well, the, the imperfections. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And, and, and actually in our own moment, that is one of the, the real hot button issues, isn't it? Is how do, how do we, what do we do with historical figures who uh, we look at aspects of their, of whether it's on a, on a moral level or on a theological level, and we say, mm. uh, what, how is that? Um, mm. that? That's not something I want to uh, replicate or um, I can't admire that. What do we do with that? And it is interesting. One one thing I think is helpful that uh, for me anyway is to realize that it it, it cuts both ways. Um, so you know, I've often found myself sort of rebuked reading Christians from the past and realizing that they have concerns that I just don't care about, and then realizing maybe I should care about the things that <laughs> okay. they, can, can they you, care yeah. about. Can, can you give us some examples? Yeah, I mean, so one example um, that strikes me on the sort of uh, more theological priorities level. Um, actually, Eric, I think I was talking to you about mm. this not that long ago. Um, mm. I, I had this experience reading uh, Anselm, uh, Crudeus Homo, on the on the God Man, on the Incarnation. Yeah, just, so, so re- real quick, who is Anselm, and, and and what on earth does Crudeus Homo mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that because I did Latin A level, but <laughs> yeah. you know, not everybody has the gift. Just yeah. re- just really quick on Anselm. Right. So I mean, so Anselm is a medieval theologian. And he is writing on the incarnation, on this question of, of why the God-man. And he's writing on the incarnation, why did uh, the Son take on our humanity? But he's writing it really with an eye towards um, thinking about atonement and the cross mm-hmm. and, and where does, how does the incarnation then lead to uh, the atonement and the salvation of the world. And he's sort of working these things out. And I'm reading along and thinking, okay, this is very interesting. He's talking about the cross. And then he has this big, to me, feels like this weird sort of back alley digression on angels. And he starts talking all about angels. And he starts asking this question, like, were angels, uh, essentially he's asking, you know, did did Christ die for angels? And, well, no, but why not? And could he have, and and do angels need to be redeemed? And could they be redeemed? And he's on this long thing about angels. And and That's the point of the Bible study where the Bible study league is thinking, who invited this guy Anselm into my Bible study? (laughs) (laughs) That's effectively what I was thinking reading, because if I'm being honest, I found myself, one, I was bored. (laughs) <laughs> Two, I was confused. Yeah. Uh, three, I thought, boy, this guy's taking a wrong turn here. And, and yeah. I find my, I'm, I'm sort of skipping this over. Like, let's get back to the important business. Yeah. And, and it does just sort of strike me, you know, um, it, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that I've, you know, we can't go overboard with, with overly obsessing over angelology or something. At the same time, it did strike me, you know, actually, um, the Bible talks a lot about angels. Mm. And I don't talk or think very much about angels yeah. uh do i ever have i ever preached on angels i mean if they're in the text maybe you mention them but but have i ever really given this serious thought mm-hmm. and it was one of these moments where you realize and maybe actually um maybe i don't want to go full anselm in my angelology at the same time might he have something to teach me might he be able to correct me and actually draw my attention to a fairly big strand in in the scriptural witness when it comes yeah. to uh angelic beings this is really interesting because I came to a similar conclusion, much more circuitous way, reading the book of Revelation, reading Greg Beale on mm-hmm. Revelation, who's mm-hmm. a wonderful guy to read. And he pointed out the obvious. Big, I don't big, big fat com or short abbreviated com? The big fat one. Okay. But the shorter abbreviated one is 
really helpful and gets at the center of it. It's just so worth reading. I, I, it's I, wonderful. I, I, I'm with you. I, I, really, I think the short one was a really good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. back on and, angels. And he points out the obvious, that in the book of Revelation twice, John wants to worship an angel, and the angel has to say, no, I'm a fellow servant along with you. That's amazing that John is so moved by angels in service of the divine king, fulfilling God's purposes for the whole world and serving the church that he wants to worship them. And then amazingly, this, this amazing, radiant, you know, higher form of divine life says, I'm a servant along with you. So clearly in the New Testament, all the focus is on Jesus Christ himself. And yet, I, I remember John Calvin on Hebrews 1, he, the, the line about uh, aren't angels uh, ministers sent to those about to inherit salvation. And Calvin says, it's no small measure of God's love for us that he sends being, beings higher than ourselves to minister to us. Mm-hmm. And it just took me way too long as a Christian to see what Anselm and Aquinas and others would have noticed and been helped by and encouraged mm-hmm. by and would not have considered a, a diversion at all. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's really helpful. You've given me a line that I really, really want to use again in the future. Going full Anselm on angel, angel <laughs> well, Next time I think someone's going a little too excited about angels, I'm going, are you going full Anselm full on me? Anselm. Don't go full Anselm on me. Full Anselm. I mean, let's keep going. More examples. But Before we do one more example, okay. can I point out one that I like from Anselm at the end of the proslogion? Mm. Proslogion, I don't even know what the proslogion means. But the, the very, I don't know what the title of the book means, but the last chapter is about heaven and the joy of the redeemed saints in the Lord mm. and the joy of the redeemed saints in each other's joy that we're going to be enjoying God in heaven. We're going to be enjoying the fact that our brothers and sisters in Christ, uncounted millions, are also enjoying the Lord mm. and so that it's going to have this exponential sort of multiplying effect where yeah, joy yeah, is yeah. going to go greater and greater. Our joy in Christ in each other, in each other's joy, and their joy in us and in Christ. It's gorgeous. I had never read anything like that yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, never. Yeah. I, I'm so individualistic. It's just me and yeah, other Christians. Have been mm. there. That's good. Mm. But that's my example from Anselm. More examples from Anselm or anyone else, Matthew? Please. Uh, yeah. So the, the I mean the Anselm one is is a nice example to me of sort of you see your theological blind spots and you see okay here here's a here's a big strand of biblical teaching that functionally I sort of ignore mm-hmm. really if I'm being mm-hmm. honest and and it's a reminder that my ways of thinking about the world and about reality are actually probably conditioned more by the mainstream popular culture yeah, yeah. than I realize um, which is so materialist it, it totally totally and we're going to yeah. fall into that even though we believe in the spiritual realm sure. and and there's a sense in which we can't escape that and the Lord has yeah. put us here in the 21st century mm-hmm. and and fair enough but it's, it's helpful, isn't it, to sort of dip your toe in a, in a pool with a very different temperature. Um, but also on the, on the sort of thinking about the Christian life, thinking about morals and ethics, you know, I'm often struck by the way in which um, writers in the past, for example, thinking about um, sort of post-Reformation um, British Christianity, so English Puritans, this kind of thing. When they write about... Uh, which, which is your home area, isn't it? It, it, it this is. This is the thing you know more about than anybody else. Pro, 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 possibly, possibly. <laughs> more than me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think about... The, they They are, like, really um, adamant, and and it's, like, not even a debate to them that, for example, Christians shouldn't be involved with, with dancing. Right. I mean, of course, you wouldn't be involved with dancing. They're they're not even really debating it when they talk about Mm. it. It's like it's so obvious that a Christian would not engage in this sort of carnal, uh, worldly, 
um, provocative thing. And it's really interesting because I read that and it doesn't necessarily make me think that they're totally right about dancing and that I yep. shouldn't have yep. danced at my wedding or something. Um, but it does, it does give me pause mm-hmm. and it does make me think, well, you know, we, we live in a, in a just sort of sex-saturated culture. <laughs> and in what ways am I insufficiently attuned to this area of Christian ethics and, and this idea of, of sexual purity? And you read these people who had such a different standard, and it, and it causes you to say, are, you know, there, there are things that um, we all, I think, are watching and looking at that, that would have shocked and horrified our 16th, 17th century brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they're right or wrong in that reaction mm-hmm. is, you know, we yeah, can yeah. talk about that. But the point is, uh, we, we're operating with just a radically different standard for what constitutes uh, godliness in, in this area. I, I quite like this. It's quite nice. So it's not a sense of, oh, Horrible histories, they were all stupid back there, and then nor is it a kind of idolization. Mm. Oh, there was a golden age, and it's just been declined ever since mm. in Christian things. But it's whether they are entirely right or whether they're not, hey, guess what? They're probably a mixture, mm. just like us. It's a different voice that makes you see things about yourself mm. that you might not otherwise have seen. That's that's really helpful. Mm. I, I want to ask you, we've been talking so far about particular thoughts and ideas and perspectives from figures in the past, which is hugely helpful. Actually, on that one, if I were to throw mine in from sort of my area of, um, uh, of preaching and teaching, the thing that mass- – we don't need to talk about this now. We might do a whole other podcast on it. When I first started reading what um, capital R reformed folks after the Reformation, and actually during the Reformation too, well, they thought about preaching. They keep mentioning this thing called the keys of the kingdom, you know, coming from places like Matthew chapter 16, Jesus saying to Peter, you've got the keys of the kingdom. When they talk about preaching, they talk about the keys of the kingdom all the time. Mm. It's absolutely central mm. in how they think about preaching. Mm. I struggle to think of a contemporary book on preaching that I know of that doesn't have a strong eye on history, that thinks about the keys of the kingdom. That's even aware that's an issue you might want to talk about when you talk about preaching. Now, I'm still thinking through whether they got all overheated on the keys of the kingdom when it comes to preaching. But it, it opened up a whole area that if I only read contemporary books and went to contemporary conferences, I, it's probably not going to, I'm probably not going to be made aware so, of it. So, so what did they mean by the keys, keys of the kingdom in preaching? I think that's a whole other podcast. A oh, whole other thing. Uh, well, okay. it, it, it's... In simple terms, uh, they've got in view, I think, that n- that strong notion, which actually to many evangelical folks now sounds a bit too worryingly Roman Catholic, that when, as it were, when the, the under-shepherd whom God has appointed to be your pastor, when he looks you in the eye and says, because I hear you say the words of repentance, whether he's doing it in one-to-one pastoral ministry or whether he's doing it in the words of the absolution, in the liturgy, in the service, when he's doing that, there is a sense in which the Lord is at work in forgiving power for you. Mm. Now, that can sound worryingly like the kind of Roman confessional priestly absolution thing. Mm. And, of course, these these Protestant folks, they don't mean anything like that. Mm. What they mean is that the Lord, in his goodness, gives you another person. You can't see the Lord Jesus, 
but you can see this other person, a pastor whom the Lord has given you, who can be a, a real means of assurance for you. I, I think they're in that territory. I'm still thinking it through as I read more of those folks. So. Does, that, does that kind of make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Matthew, could I ask you, inasmuch as every age has certain strengths and insights and certain blind spots and things they won't be good at seeing, I'm not sure how I would answer this question, but do you think 21st century Western Christians are good at seeing things about the gospel that maybe 16th century or 17th century Christians weren't as good at picking up on? Mm. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. I I mean, there's a sense in which even before we think of what specific examples might fit the bill, mm. just just sort of thinking about the basic logic of, of the conversation we're having, we'd have to assume that uh, there would be things about being a Christian in the 21st century West that would uh, make us alive to certain realities, alert to certain realities that our um, past uh, Christian forebears would, would, would have been a bit um, dead to. And I think... Um, that's absolutely right. So, for example, one one obvious one that comes to mind is I think we are thinking about evangelism and we are thinking about reaching uh, non Christians in a way that would have probably been impossible for a you know seventeenth century um, British Christian. Right? If you are in the seventeenth century and you're living in this country, um, just about everybody is at least a Christian on paper. Right? It doesn't mean everyone is a Christian in the John 3, you must be born again kind of sense. Um, they were certainly aware of that. But everybody sort of nominally would put their hand up, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm a Christian. You know, you had occasional um, exceptions to that. But that's basically the thing. So the whole sort of conversation about how we um, talk, how we preach, how we reach people with the gospel um, Obviously, they're very alert to the need for conversion, but the whole conversation takes on a very different tone and tenor in that context. Uh, whereas now, we're, you know, we're having conversations about apologetics, about engaging with uh, people of other faiths, uh, engaging with Islam. Um, how do you how do you talk to someone who? Um, it's not just that they're not a Christian. They don't think that these questions have any relevance or in, in, info that they need to hear. They, they're thinking this is sort of like a medieval holdover. How do you, how do you talk to somebody like that? Um, so, so we're going to process that um, differently. You know, um, and I think there, yeah, there, there are other examples as, as well. Uh, we already mentioned, the, I think, the global perspective that, that we now have. It's, it's not that past Christians didn't, you know, read... Um, the Great Commission, and, and have a sense of these things, but um, we have a sort of global awareness and a sensitivity and an interest that I think would have been really uh, inaccessible to people in, in certain times and places. We've been thinking about um, particular uh, ideas and, um, uh, and angles and viewpoints folks had in the past. If we shifted to maybe particular periods or individual figures... In a sense, your answer to this is going to be, I want people to know about everything. <laughs> but if you're, if you're the pastor of a church and, peop- and you want people to get hold of one particular individual or period from church history that's really going to help them in their own life as a Christian, wh- where are you going to go? Mm. Well, um, you know, 
Yes, there are obviously lots of answers to that, and that's going to you know depend on one's individual yeah. tastes and preferences. But for me, I, I do think that for um, um, from in my own life, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. I have been most helped and shaped by the uh, post Reformation uh, English Puritans, and uh, there, you know, why why is that? Well, in part. These were people, so these are people writing in the late 16th century and in through the 17th century, so uh, late, six, uh, late 1500s into the 1600s. And, um, you know, they just put out this incredible body of devotional literature, uh, this incredible wealth of um, commentary on scripture, uh, sermons, um, all sorts of investigations into the Christian life in, in sort of, sometimes it can feel like exhausting detail, but they really just turn over, what, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be godly? Mm. Uh, and they just have a very searching sort of um, mm. comprehensive vision for living the Christian life that, that I found really helpful and, and really encouraging. And one of the things that I think is encouraging, you know, we were talking before about each era has its own sort of strengths and weaknesses. And Often, when I read these Puritan authors, I see them, um, I, I see strength there where I see weakness in myself. So, uh, for example, you know, I, I look at myself and I think I'm, I'm, pretty, um, I'm pretty soft in a lot of ways. I'm used to incredible material comfort. I mean, by any global or historical yep. standard, all of us in this room live like, you know, kings and queens. And uh, you're reading people who had to uh, struggle uh, greatly with just the basic material necessities of life. And, you know, that perspective um, shapes their outlook. And and I find when I read these Puritan authors, they seem less surprised uh, than I often find myself when faced with the reality that, yes, uh, the world has fallen, and the creation itself is groaning yeah, yeah. and waiting for redemption. They, wow. they don't seem as surprised that life is hard and that um, sometimes bad things happen and uh, oh. loved ones die. I mean, uh, you think about somebody like John Owen, Puritan mm-hmm. pastor, who had, I think he had 11 children. Oh, he lost so, almost all of them. All it was of all them of them. but one it, I think, uh, died. And then one of them died as a teenager, isn't that correct? That, that does ring yeah. a bell, yeah. I, I mean, it was, to... it was a really... Yeah, I th- and I think his wife died before him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the poor mm-hmm. man had to bury his entire family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the last books he wrote was Communion with God. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, mm. but I, I don't know if our audience has read it. I, I, For me, I think Communion with God, outside of Scripture, is maybe the book that has helped me the most just in terms of being a Christian and coming yeah. before. And he wrote at the end of his life, the poor man had to bury every member mm. of his family. Mm. And the way he talks about it. It is extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. I interrupted. I'm sorry, Matt. Actually, Matt, please. just on that communion yeah. with God. I mean, John Owen's big can be hard going to read, but mm. there, there is a kind of simplified version out there, isn't it? Is it Kelly Capic? Is that yeah? One? That's right. That's right. K A P I C. If people want to pick that up, can, can I make an appeal for the original Owen? Though I find him very difficult to read, bad English. But I find if I read him out loud, I can hear what he's saying. Oh, uh, interesting. And actually, I think there's a kind of sermonic influence. I, I feel like he's preaching to me. And I find it a lot easier to keep up with him if I'm reading him out loud. That's just yeah. me. Maybe okay. other people have a different experience. But mm. I, Actually, can I just, just on what you were talking about that made me think, um, I mean, I'm verging into your territory, so you can tell me more about this. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read John Flavel, Flavel, Flavel? Not sure. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> he was a pastor in Devon, wasn't he? Mm. Um, 
wrote a book called, is it The Mystery of Divine Providence? It's a book on providence. Yeah, yeah The Mystery of Providence. And yeah. I read that, what you were saying just made, made me remember it. He says things about providence, and clearly he was saying this to his congregation, that I, that I would never say. So at one point he said something like, um, he's talking about marriage. He said, maybe there have been people, married couples, he said, I think there probably have been, where they have been too devoted to each other and it it was clouding their devotion to the Lord so the Lord took one of the, mar- one of the partners away in, mm. in death. And I remember thinking, wow. did, did you actually sit in, <laughs> did you actually say that in your pastoring? I, I mean, I have no idea if he was right to do so. But it, for me, it was one of those moments of just like you were saying, he he took seriously the realities mm. of suffering and deprivation mm. and grief because because it was daily. Mm. You know, he spent a lot of time ministering to, to people who were going out onto the high seas, mm. sailors. He wrote he wrote these amazing sermons for ship captains to read mm. out on ship. He's just living with the realities of death every day, mm. and that would have led him to say that kind of thing. Wow! And as you say, it brought me up short. I, I'm not surrounded by that. Yeah. Well, and I and I ought to take it far more seriously than I do. And you don't have to completely agree with everything you said the way you said it to no. benefit from it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. I mean, you could look at that and you could actually say, I, I don't think that's a helpful thing to say from the pulpit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the fact that he would have said that, it just is putting you into this radically different frame yeah, and yeah. challenging some assumptions I have because maybe I'm not going to go uh, full flavor on mm. that particular point. Yeah. But maybe I could be a little more bold <laughs> okay. in underscoring are some you, very biblical... Don't uh, go at full end, so... <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are some other names from the English Puritans who are really meaningful and been really helpful for you? Yeah, um, it's so there, there, there's there's a lot. I mean, really, one one thing that I um, students often ask, well, which 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 would you, should we read? Um, one thing I tell them to remember, uh, I, I don't want to say you can't go wrong. But at the same time, when you think about something like the Banner of Truth that puts out these Puritan mm. paperbacks, mm. those Puritan paperbacks, it seems like there's a lot of them and there are. But they have selected those 50 volumes or whatever from a vast sea of printed material. The, the early modern period in England sees this explosion of print culture. And so they are selecting from hundreds, if not thousands, of devotional treatises, these that they think would be helpful. So there is a sense in which pick one that interests you, and it's already been hand-selected from a much larger catalog. That being said, um, one one that I would mention in this context is is Richard Sibbs, mm. and um, if you've heard of Richard Sibbs, you often hear of his the Bruised Reed, Bruised Reed, and the Smoking Flax, which yeah, which yeah. is which is a great is a great one. Um, there's one I I like uh, just as much, if not more, though. It's similar kind of theme. It's it's uh, called the Soul's Conflict with Itself. Mm. And it's an exposition of, I believe it's Psalm 42, Why Are You Cast Down, O mm. My Soul? Mm. And he's just really examining and turning over um, this sense of, of spiritual, um, I mean, we might call it spiritual depression, however we want to call it, this, this sense that I, I don't feel the realities of the gospel in the way that I know I should feel and the way I want to feel. Wow. And he's turning it over. And what I find really interesting about it is that, um, one, he has a remarkable... I think, sense of psychological sophistication. Mm. It's not a 21st century psychological sophistication, Mm. but he acknowledges a whole range of things. So, for example, he acknowledges that one aspect of feeling low may very well have a biological basis. 
Now his biological basis is all about yep. weird humors and yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, too much sure, bile sure. or whatever. Sure. But the point is, he he's he's he is seen that there's a lot of different reasons why we feel low. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another reminder that, that people in the past w- sometimes aren't as, as dumb as we think they are, you know. Um, but the other thing I, I think is interesting, and, um, you know, one thing that characterizes Puritan preaching often is that they will, from our perspective, really sort of belabor, you know, a very short section of Scripture. I mean, we often preach, you know, when I go to preach, you know, you take a pericope, you take a section, a passage, and, yeah, and, yeah. and it, they will take a, a verse or half a verse yeah, yeah, yeah. and just preach at length. So here's Richard Sibbs expositing, uh, why are you cast down my soul, um, just for pages and pages mm-hmm. and pages. Mm-hmm. And we might think sometimes they get the balance wrong. Do they read things in that aren't there? Maybe that's a fine debate to have. But um, whether or not they read things in that aren't there, they certainly get a lot more out than we do when we're continuously preaching from longer sections. And it's just another point of cultural sort of discontinuity that I found really interesting. I make, hey, this could be another podcast. I make a bit of a song and dance in some teaching here about what's to be learned from Puritan sermon application. We don't necessarily want to go all the way there. I think there's a. I think Jim Packer has a line in um, Among God's Giants, his kind of introductory book mm-hmm. to the Puritans. He he says something like, "This is not an exact quote." Um, the Puritans on sermon application and the way they're applying into the soul is one of their great gifts mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. the to the church that comes. Mm-hmm. I have loved this. This has been a brilliant conversation. Um, let's, last couple of minutes, maybe let's bring th- some things to land. You very helpfully there steered us towards some particular books if someone wants a way in here or a, a refresher, a reminder. I'm just thinking any practical ways in w- that we could think of that local churches could really help. People don't have time and inclination to go read massive books. People have busy lives. Yeah. But ways in which pastors can really help people get into these things. I, I could think of one thing I did when I was a vicar. I, I can't even remember how the idea came about, but it turned out to be a great thing. We invited someone, actually, I think, I think it was Mike Reeves, who's written some really helpful practical books on, on church history as well as a bunch of other things. He was living not too far away. I think it was him. Um, Mike, if you're listening to this and it wasn't you, I really apologise. <laughs> if it wasn't you, it was a great night, thanks. Um, I asked him to do um, the history of the church in a night, in one evening, which, I mean, it was ridiculous, like an hour and a half, two hours. And he did a fantastic job. We kind of treated, we sort of went around the room, we some Augustine, and then we came to Calvin, and then I can't remember who we then came to. And folks really loved it. Just gave them a sense of, ah, oh, here are all the ways in which God has worked in the church to lead up to, well, not lead up to us, but and now here we were in our little place mm-hmm. in Hinckley, just as part of that ongoing story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was a great thing. Any other things that you can think of that you've experienced or just occurs as a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think... Um one thing that I've had success with in local church context would be doing little biographical sketches. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. take a, a figure from church history, uh, could be someone really big name, Martin Luther, John Calvin, could be someone less well known. Um, but you take an individual, you know, the, an individual's life gives a sort of natural ordering principle. Mm-hmm. And in 40 minutes to an hour, you can kind of go through their life and you draw some lessons. It, it's just a really nice way and a gentle way, I think, to introduce a, a whole a time period and to see how God worked through the prism of a, of a particular life. 
Um, like in one, a church teaching night or Lent course or where, something. Yeah, yeah however yeah. you can find that, not the Sunday morning sermon, but wherever you can find that teaching opportunity. Mm-hmm. And one person who has obviously a very prominent national international ministry who models this, I think, really well is John Piper, who um, you know has done this year on year in his church context. Those are all available on on uh, Desiring God website. And you can hear these just you know one hour mm. on Augustine life and lessons, and I think it's a really nice way. Um, to draw out some of this stuff. Um, you know, another thought, though, that comes to mind, thinking about ministry in the local church and thinking about pastors and church history, I, I, th- I think church history and a sense of history and a sense of where our congregation fits into this larger story mm-hmm. is, is a really helpful aspect, an important aspect of leadership mm-hmm. in the sense that you are trying to show the folks gathered here in this moment and this place and this time, that though we may be small in number and though we may be few and we may not be very impressive, actually we are part of a much larger story. Wow. And I mean, in a sense, that's what preachers, that's what you're doing in the pulpit when you tie folks in, you are saved in Christ and actually this is a part of a redemptive story much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, it's, it's sort of an aspect of that, but to say, hey, um, our church here, might not be all that impressive. We might even be living through a period where in God's providence, things are hard for Christians. Mm. But actually, God has done great things in the past. Uh, he is doing great things, and he will do great things. And giving folks a sense of that history, plugging them into that, I think is an encouragement uh, to people who who might not see a lot of encouragement on the ground in this particular moment. It's a wonderful grace to realize it's you know you are part of a larger story, a larger family, and and noble Christians who've gone before you struggled deeply imperfect. I think in one of John Piper's talks, I don't remember which one it was, one of the biographical talks he was doing, in a it, it, deeply admiring this person he was talking about, but he said you get twenty feet away from them, you can see flaws, you can see mm-hmm. blind spots, mm-hmm. um, very saintly and very imperfect at the same time. Mm-hmm. But, but it's wonderful to know more about them. Matthew, thank you so much for being here with us. And and thank you to the audience for joining in and listening to us. We hope this has been a blessing to you as it has been for us. Thank you.